Venture is a great model. Right? It's a tool and, it, and it's built a ton of wonderful businesses. But it has become the de facto way that I think any businesses associated with technology are funded and grow. And I think there's other ways to do it. I mean, in an extreme scale, you'd say, if you wanted to scale a software business in 2005 and you know you had your first 10 customers and you want to get to 100 customers, you're going to buy a server and you you might be writing seven-figure checks to, to get this stood up. Like It's a big kind of risky underwriting for a business of that scale. Now you can kind of pay as you grow. And so like the idea of being a profitable business but still have massive growth potential is not mutually exclusive anymore. Hey, this is Stu Bradley, seven-year NFL vet, current general partner and co-founder of LCAP Holdings, and this is The Game Plan. We are excited to have Stuart Bradley join us on The Game Plan. Stu, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So before we jump into all the amazing things that you're working on now with LCAP Holdings, we want to talk a little bit about your NFL journey. You were drafted in the third round of the 07 draft by the Philadelphia Eagles. You played there for four years and you spent some time with the Cardinals and Broncos. At what point during that NFL journey did you start thinking about what came next for you? I think most guys in the NFL, unless you're like a household marquee name, I think you have to be thinking about what's next before you even really get drafted. Like you, you just don't know. There's a lot of unknown aspects and the industry and injury risk is so high in football that it's kind of this ever present aspect of your professional journey. That said, I think there's a lot of guys who probably aren't thinking about it just because, you know, it's getting wrapped up in playing a professional sport is really easy, right? Because you're kind of insulated. The city you're in cares a lot about the team. And, and I think people can conflate like notoriety in their market with national notoriety. And so I think having a dad and a mom that were probably always pushing me to figure out the next step informed a lot of kind of how I thought about it. But I don't think I had any concrete plans until right. the last year when I, I was injured in preseason and, and I knew I was ready to be finished. You know, I was on a new team and had gone through kind of the process of, of winning the starting job there and, and, but really wasn't enjoying it anymore. Like I was 30 and had been playing football for a long time. And football is something that kind of happens to you. Um, mm. Unlike basketball or tennis or like a skill sport where you've honed thousands of hours of, of, you know, alone time banging a ball or shooting a ball to, to build a skill set. Football is kind of like a genetic lottery. It's like, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm probably oversimplifying it. <laughs> you can't do like, Oh, I'm in AAU football on top of my high school football. And then I have club football. Like it's just not a thing. Right. And you kind of, right. you show up at, you know, your high school gym and you kind of do what your coach says and colleges send you letters and then you pick a school and you just kind of go to the workouts and if it works out, then scouts and agents call you and then someone drafts you. It's like, it's very much. Well, well did you have that thought in college where you were like, the NFL is, is where I'm going to go? Or was, was there some doubt in your mind that maybe you were going to go out of college and do something else? So we had a coaching change at Nebraska. It's funny. I, I was, we're getting recruited there when they were in the national championship game. And I think right. like when I got there, it was just like, let's have four just atrocious years. Paul Stu was here, so maybe it was my fault. But 
they brought in uh, Bill Callahan to coach, and he had been a head coach in the NFL. And I think it was after my sophomore year when he was asking me about, you know, what I thought about my, you know, my football career and what I wanted to do with it, where I was very much thinking I was just going to go get a job after mm. graduation. He's like, well, why aren't you going to play in the NFL? And that was kind of like the first kind of aha moment. Like, oh, I didn't even think that was a thing that I could, you know, it just felt so before you kind of see behind the curtain, it feels mysterious and like, all oh, these things are magic and they're all like from, you know, everyone came from the SEC. Like, can you like uh, uh, a lerpy white kid from Utah, like go play in the NFL? Like probably not. And so I think when that conversation with Bill after my sophomore year was the first time that I kind of thought it might be possible, but you also just never know if your college coach yeah. is blowing smoke because they definitely, he could have said it to every single person like, well, you should really focus on your career because you can play in the NFL. And I was just naive enough to, to buy it. I have no idea which, which was the case, but that was kind of the, the, I don't think I, I shifted like the preparation for not making the NFL. Like I didn't, not I didn't stop going to my accounting classes because of what Coach Callahan said, but it it kind of it planted the seed. Yeah, so we see a lot of athletes when they retire, they go to business school or they'll go right into investing or wanting to start a company. But you started as an analyst at Goldman Sachs and later at Steadfast. What was your thought process in taking that path? And you know, can you talk a little bit about maybe the humility that went into joining that kind of work environment? after having played in the NFL. So some context setting here after my fourth season, normally people sign a rookie contract four years, pretty stock. And the value of those contracts is pretty slighted based on your draft order. There's not a lot of wiggle room and your kind of first payday quote unquote is after your rookie contract when you enter free agency. So the year I was entering free agency was also when the CBA was up um, for negotiation. So we were in a lockout. There was a lot of uncertainty about when we were going to, you know, reignite and, and were we going to sign a deal? Were we going to set out the whole year? And during that process, I'd actually started talking to some people in my network about, okay, I don't know if football's going to be a thing or not. I mean, it, that was maybe an extreme view, but it's like, I should start just getting some balls rolling on uh, job opportunities. And I actually went through like a quasi hiring process at Bernstein took their IQ tests and and did a bunch of personality graphs and kind of had something lined up. And then I, as I learned more about what the job was, it was kind of a PWM role. And I think that really informed nothing against those jobs, but like it wasn't really what I wanted to do. And as I unpacked kind of more what the requirements were to like actually be an investor, what if I want to be the decision maker that's, that's actually deciding where the capital goes versus someone more in a sales role, like what skills would I have to have? And it's like, well, all those guys, like they're, they're analysts or like, it's like a really long track and, and they kind of frame it as this, this thing that you can't do. And that stuck with me. So when I was kind of decided I was done, I was in an MBA prep course and, you know, thinking what's going to differentiate kind of my story versus other athletes. And then also, you know, how do I, quickly ramp up and build that hard skill set. And Goldman just felt like the right opportunity. I mean, it was definitely brutal working hundred hour weeks in New York, you know, you're in that TMT group as well, which is legendary for that. So yeah, I mean, it was, I just don't think you can, you can replicate the kind of learning that that environment gives you because there's no one in their right mind is going to work that much. 
right? <laughs> who is going to spend a hundred hours in Excel models, you know, working through credit agreements for some financing for, you know, LexCorp, like it's just not a thing. So I, I'm happy I made the decision and I think that kind of Bernstein experience and just getting a better understanding of kind of what the roles were and, and also kind of how it pigeonholed you to some degree, you know, 10, 15 years down the road. Like, is it hard to jump from one to the other and, and them articulating that, yes, it is hard to like, to just all of a sudden become an investor, you know, 10 yeah. years down the line when you've never done any investing experience or, or, or any financial analysis will, will be a tough transition. So that kind of informed why I, I opted for the Goldman round versus the MBA. Yeah, you're touching on an interesting theme there, which is that like, it comes up with a lot of our guests that when you're making that transition as an athlete into the business world, there's that balance of like being a former NFL player opens a lot of doors for you, creates a great network for you. But then it's like being, it's hard to be taken seriously as an athlete when you're in the business world. How did you find that for you? And, and I guess, how does that change now when you speak about your experience, either as an NFL player or, you know, coming from sort of the Goldman and, and financial route? Well, I mean, I think the, the jury's still out if my approach is the right way to do it, right? But I was very much wanting to build that quantitative skill set because I, the underlying assumption was the story of being a professional athlete and the, and the lessons that I've learned there are not going away. Like they're somewhat evergreen. The, the relevance of my playing career though, I think is kind of a finite aspect of being an athlete. Like you have that first six months or first year where you still like have relationships with the current stars. And like, it's kind of interesting, like, Oh, you were just in the Super Bowl, Like, that's awesome. But five years down the road, like people are like, you played when and who like you just, it beat your relevance just kind of declines. And so, I think you're like the springboard and this is different if you're, you know, Michael Jordan or Kevin Durant or Steph Curry, like we're, there's a different level, right? Peyton Manning. Like if you're that level of superstar, Larry Fitzgerald or something, your ability to leverage your career is, is much greater than a random kind of guy who was a linebacker that played on some teams for a couple of years, right? Like you just, it's, you have a different opportunity set to leverage. So I think using that springboard while it's still kind of hot to do something interesting or like to get on a path is kind of like the way I, I thought about it. Like this is not going to be a fallback for me five, 10 years from now. It may be a differentiator if I've built something, but I need to use this platform and this kind of story to get on the right path and then show that I can make, make progress through just work and aptitude and then, you know, eventually I'll be able to have this kind of cool origin story dynamic. But by actively trading, you know, not leveraging the network and I mean, working at Goldman as an analyst could not be farther from a sales job, right? It's like you are in effectively a cave, like building, you know, doing arithmetic at scale in an Excel file. And then working at a hedge fund, like relationships aren't really important. You're, you know, it's very quantitative as well. And I think the skills I learned doing that are, have been invaluable to what we're doing now, but I am like slightly stunted on like, okay, now you like actually engage and, and develop a network. And so like, that's my point on TBD, if that was the right trade, but yeah, it felt like the most natural prog progression for me. Yeah. And then one of the things you did is, is you went and found a partner to build LCAP with. 
And so I, I asked our mutual friend and your co-founder in LCAP, Kunal Tundin, uh, who introduced us, whether he had any questions for you. And his question was, why was it so important for Stu to find a great partner, which is typically self-serving <laughs> of Kunal. But let's, let's ask it a different way, which is when you're starting something new, how do you evaluate what you're looking for in a co-founder or a partner that you're going to be working with? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And Kunal's framing is, sounds right on the button. I think it's a, it's a resource challenge, right? That's the way I think I approached finding someone who was a good fit. I mean, there's obviously core values you need to be aligned on, you know, integrity and just like the, the pace and vibe of the person because you're spending a, a ton of time with them when you start anything new. So that's, I think, the first step. And then beyond that, it was, I have a you know, certain amount of skills that either innate or that I've kind of augmented through my work over the years. And when you're starting something, specifically an investment firm, you know, the breadth and depth of your experience and knowledge is effectively the currency with which you build the fund on. So having a Venn diagram of skills that has as minimal of overlap as possible felt like a, a good way to approach team building, like assuming that you have the attributes I mentioned earlier. So Kanal, with his operational experience and, and work in venture and, and just interfacing with, with private markets and kind of building a network of people that work in different roles through Twitter and the internet, which is very different than what I'd done in kind of traditional high finance and public market investing. And obviously our networks just being from different places and having different kind of prior work experience and school experience, it felt like there was very actually little overlap. And so him being sharp and uh, us like, I think finding each other intellectually stimulating and then the kind of interesting uh, mosaic of skills we could put together, I think all kind of culminated in like, this is a really natural partnership and it's been a pleasure to work with him. I think it's been, I hope that he'd say the same, but there's a lot of kind of personal growth and just, perspective shifting that I think a good partner can bring for you. Yeah, I like that idea of the Venn diagram. I think that that's an interesting way to say it. The The challenge I think sometimes becomes when you're, your values have to align, even if the skill sets in the Venn, Venn diagram don't. Yeah. And sometimes it's hard to, to find a balance of both, right? Oh, I think, it, I mean, I talked to a lot of people, right? It's not, finding the right partner is, is, is vital, right? And maybe even more so in an investment vehicle where you're not like scaling a team and you can roll out co-founders and like the, it, a, like a growing business is a little more fungible with like what the team looks like in two years from who founded the business where, you know, one of the most important things I think you're, you're trying to convey and build is stability and trust and a, a partnership for a firm that breaks apart after two years. is like, you know, diametrically opposite ends of that spectrum. So yeah, it feels like a paramount decision for any successful investment endeavor. So let's dig in a bit more on LCAP Holdings. Your website says investing in sustainable growth. And so for our listeners who might not be as familiar with LCAP, tell us what it is and what kind of investments you guys look at. So we're focused on investing in private businesses. We look at B2B only and kind of a heavy lean towards software businesses. We're looking... I think on a you know a simple level, just for businesses that are between one and five million in ARR, uh, we think it's what we kind of call the white space between venture and private equity. I think there's a lot of uh, venture is a great 
model. It's a tool and it, and it's built a ton of wonderful businesses, but it is become the de facto way that I think any businesses associated with technology are funded and grow. And I think there's other ways to do it. And especially in the B2B space where sales cycles are long. And even if you have established product market fit, like there is kind of some lurchy aspects to where the next step function of growth will come. Finding a path to sustainability, meaning that you can, you actually can become cash flow positive is I think an increasingly important step because the underlying cost dynamics of growing businesses has changed with just cloud and microservices. I mean, we have a company that is standing up just a simple kind of, you know, API plugin to their data streams and standing them up into a BI tool. And I talked to similar businesses that, that built a similar stack five years ago and they spent, you know, three or $400,000 just on all the services and the work. And I think this business will stand it up for 40 K. So we're talking like an order of magnitude in like seven years, call it just with, the underlying cost structure and the amount of services and, and outsourcing you can do to, to kind of build the, the base infrastructure. I mean, in an extreme scale, you'd say if you wanted to scale a software business in 2005 and you know, you had your first 10 customers and you want to get to hundred customers, you're going to buy a server and you're, you may be writing seven figure checks to, to get this stood up. Like that's a really, it's a big kind of risky underwriting for a business of that scale. And now you can kind of pay as you grow. And so like the idea of being a profitable business, but still have massive growth potential is not, they're not, they're not mutually exclusive anymore. You know, we look at, we did, you know, a bunch of kind of case studies kind of proving the market validity of this. And I think for businesses we found on PitchBook over the past, I think 10 years that have not, that didn't take any financing for 18 to 24 months after incorporating have created over 250 billion dollars of of cap right you're looking at businesses like qualtrics and uh, shopify and and they eventually may take growth financing and may have had venture backers but it just it, it gave us confidence that if you're you know building a business like atlassian that totally didn't take you know bootstrap businesses that now are multi multi-billion public companies just kind of corroborates the the view that you don't need to you know, take a seed round and then grow and then get a, you know, or pre-seed round and a seed round and then 12 months later, take an A round. And like, you, like that path is great, but you're also kind of forcing a growth trajectory on a business that is somewhat arbitrary and determined by like the financing model versus like, is this actually the best thing for the business? Like do, does the customer, you know, and the market and all of those dynamics, which are hyper important in, you know, any business are those factors like, do they align with like this type of spending on sales and marketing right now? Like, and if they don't, then should we be spending it? And so just asking those questions, I think can be super helpful for kind of fledging businesses and especially in these non winner take all markets. So again, to reiterate, not a disparagement on like the venture model and that path, like that's great. And for the right companies and for a lot of companies, it's awesome, but there's, there's a lot of other businesses out there that, still are building huge, you know, have huge potential to, to grow and they can do that without taking the venture path. So, you know, I think that's kind of the underlying, underlying, uh, thesis behind LCAP. Yeah. I mean, look, Jay and I are both venture investors. So to that degree, maybe we're 
part of the problem that you're describing, although maybe you're not describing a problem. I think the bigger problem is, you know, people, it's easy to get caught up on the headlines behind a venture financing and look at like venture financing and milestones with, with fundraising as success, but that's, that's not what success is about, right? Success is about building a business. And for me, I actually get really excited for entrepreneurs because I think there are more and more alternative ways to build and to fundraise and LCAP Holdings seems to be one of those, you know, and maybe alternative is the wrong word, but you know, you, you're filling a different need. So it seems like maybe in that sense, your positioning is really resonating out there. Would you say that? Yeah, I, th- I think the, if I had to synthesize the pitch to an operator, it's that we want to provide optionality for them, right? I think if you have the, the business kind of aligns with, there's a massive opportunity and it totally makes sense for us to invest and grow and pursue it then we want to facilitate that, right? We're happy to have one of our a company that we've invested in take the venture path, right? If that's the right thing for them. But making the decision through the lens of what's best for the business first, not what's best for the financing, uh, for our financing partners. And I know that's that hopefully the alignment, you can get aligned and because aligned incentives are hyper important, right? But I think it's it's a nuanced difference, but I think it's important for an operator because if you can tell, you know, an operator that if your business gets a ten million ARR and you want it to, you want to just you know spit off cash and just take dividends, like we're totally fine with that, right? Mm-hmm. Like I don't need to mark my book up in a year and a half. And so if you haven't taken an incremental capital, like we're a structured a private equity firm, like we can do a div recap, we can we could buy your whole business. We're happy to help facilitate a total sale. We are happy to, you know, evergreen this position and just take cash out. So. I think that's, I think, resonating, right? Because you're, we're not trying to close the door on venture if that's what's needed, right? Like if you're, you're going from two or three million AR and you're going to 10 and, you know, benchmark calls and they want to help you grow and like, the, like you, that's great. We should do, let's do it. Like we're all on board, yeah. like, you know? So I think the optionality is, is important and, and, you know, back to the B2B focus, you know, our view is that, you're not really impacting terminal value that much by not focusing on growth early on. I think B2B businesses and their terminal values are highly dependent on execution. Like, can these guys just chop wood? Like, are they, do they have a, a good, you know, good visibility on their go to market and there is a product feedback pipeline really tight and do they market well and are they efficient and good hirers and, can do they have the operational attributes to like scale the organization? Like those are what really determine if a business can go from, you know, a hundred million to a billion to ten billion. Being first is still important, but it's just less important, I think, in especially as you extend the, the time horizon. So when you came in and said finding alignment with the company, right? Most seed stage VCs, especially ones that are started by former operators, they pitch the same thing. They say, oh, we are very much aligned. We are the first check-in. We're very much aligned. But then there's the reality of, well, VCs have to raise new funds, so they have to show markups. And companies, whether or not they need to take additional capital in that moment, are almost sort of in that mode where they say, look, if I can take the money in today, let me take it, because we don't know when there's going to be a lean year, like today, right? If you were a company in Q1 of 2020, gearing up for a big fundraise in Q2, God bless you, right? Hopefully you had some runway. So I I don't think VCs would disagree with you, but I am curious how that messaging maybe changes when 
you are looking at a company that is considering a you know VC funded path on one hand, and then maybe going with LCAP on the other hand. How does that structurally change for them? How they take the investment and what they're expected to do with that capital? Yeah, I, th- I think it's about expectations as well, right? While I imagine many C investors are would totally say they're aligned. I think they'd also say like, when, like, what are the metrics that would like facilitate you taking your next round of financing? I I imagine they're still thinking that, you know, there will be another round and, you know, we may, they may have a strategy where like, we, you know, we sell like X percentage of our portfolio at the B, like we, we don't have the fund size to pro route all the way up. And so it doesn't really make sense for us. Like if you have that kind of exit dynamic or you have exited before, like it, it's whether it's implicit or, or, or not, or, or explicit or implied, it it's still kind of there, right? That that you're a seed financing and you're you're one of the stage. If I log on PitchBook, it's like series, you know, seed A, B. Like it's it, it's it's the stage model, and it's not a bad model. It's just I think it's hard for it would be hard for a VC to go to an operator and be like, we're a seed fund, but like it's okay if you never take any other financing, right? I just think that's I think that's probably not. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there are shops that are that are, are saying that, but I think from our experience in talking to operators that have kind of been in and around the space, they understand there like there are expectations that if you take seed financing, that you're going to be taking incremental financing at a later yeah, date. Yeah, and and some some of the challenge also, I think you articulated earlier, and I'm curious to dig into this with you because I, I think it's a fundamental shift in how businesses are being built today. So you mentioned that it used to be a back-end challenge, right? You needed the capital on the back-end to just stand up the company. The back-end challenge has been solved thanks to cloud and AWS. But now we have a front-end challenge, which is how do you acquire customers? And unfortunately, or, or fortunately, depending on how, how successful the strategy ends up being, most of these VCs are saying, hey, the way you solve the customer problem is by taking on additional capital and going out and you know either building a sales team or acquiring customers digitally. How does that shift when you sit down with the founder and say, we know you need to acquire customers, but we don't necessarily think you need to go raise a massive amount of capital to do it. Like, how does your approach change the advice that you're giving, I guess? I mean, it, it's, I think it's hard in the abstract because mm, it's, okay. it's, it's, I mean, we can give an example, right? Uh, there's also somewhat of a, a model shift happening in SaaS, right? I think you're seeing uh, a lot of interesting companies that are kind of they're moving away from I'm going to have a bunch of salespeople, and it's more like if I can do it's kind of like the land and expand, right? It's like the top down, bottom up. I can get I have a single player mode on my product. I can I can sell into a, a single team, and like the first you know products that have done this well, Slack aside because that's kind of a whole organization that focused product, but engineering and design kind of the low hanging fruit. And if you can get those teams to adopt and you can target them via Facebook ads or, you know, direct buys or, you know, product hunt or like there's, there's efficient ways to actually to, to kind of target enterprise workers through a consumer lens, right? The same way I'd want to sell if I'm selling widgets or I'm, I'm building a social network, like you, you don't have like, the cat can't be massive, right? Cause you need to reach a huge volume of people. So that is kind of the same way the cloud has kind of changed some of the cost structure. I also think business models and then the cost to acquire users and like the way you can kind of grow in orgs is also a little different. Like we'll totally happy, still happily look at a, 
a traditional SaaS business. And I think that's there's still validity to that, especially in kind of some of the some of the enterprise stack that's still kind of pretty analog, like procurement. But for a lot of tools now, you know, you can you can get 20, 30 person teams onboarded without having an enterprise contract. Like they're pulling a credit card out and they're, they're hey, we're going to use this tool because we like it, right? And that's, I mean, Atlassian's a great example of someone who's done that at scale. So I think there's understanding what the product is, the market they're selling into, what the founder wants to do, and you know, both the economic and financial aspects of the business and making sure they're kind of aligned. If that stuff isn't, isn't a good fit, then we probably aren't the right funding model, right? Like if, if there's misalignment there, then that's why we're not saying that venture shouldn't be a thing. We're just saying there's other things in addition to venture. Venture is still great. Like, and for a lot of businesses, it's the right path, but it's, it's, it's fine, Stu. You don't have to cater to our, our venture uh, egos over here. (laughs) Honestly, it may sound like I'm totally trying to cover my ass, but I think I think there is a real symbiotic aspect to what we're trying to do um, because if you think venture is like a highway, right? Maybe we're you know we're sitting next to the highway and catching people who either didn't want to take the road or or kind of they you know had to take a pit stop and they want to get back on. But there's a lot of those businesses, and so facilitating you know uh, kind of a sustainable getting a business to be sustainable and then allowing them to decide how they want to grow is kind of like the core maybe thing we're trying to solve for. And whether that growth is a growth equity check or selling the business or, you know, just organic growth with no incremental capital infusions or taking a venture path, like that's kind of, I think should be predicated on the opportunity set and what the the operator wants to, to solve for. And that's like, that's what we're trying to provide to them, right? That's like the, that's the pitch. So let's talk about that a little bit more. I think it's clear what you guys stand for and what you're seeking out. I'm curious then how you go out and you actually develop your deal flow and and source companies that fall, you know, not only with in line with in terms of the types of funding you're trying to do, but obviously in terms of like what your thesis is for SaaS business. Most of the conversations we're having are just with people who are kind of in the venture pipeline, right? The same way you build deal flow for like a series A shop or like a, you know, a seed shop that doesn't do pre-seed checks. We're kind of approaching it the same way. I think a lot of the companies we talk to or they can take either, they can kind of go either way, right? So it's, that's to the point on finding the alignment. Like there's a lot of companies we talk to where we like a lot of aspects of the business, but the founder wants to, you know, take a different path, like that's, that's okay. And like they should pursue that path, but evangelizing kind of what we're doing is like kind of half of the conversation we maybe have with operators the first time we speak to them, unless they're reading our stuff or they've been introduced um, to us with, you know, many of the seed shops that we do kind of talk to often, maybe they have some context, but often we are in those early conversations, just trying to educate about what we're doing and the optionality we're trying to provide and, yeah, I don't think the deal flow kind of generation is really that different, at least at our current size, than a traditional kind of venture shop would be. And you're from Salt Lake, so SaaS is the business to be in, right? <laughs> there are a ton of of interesting companies out there, that's for sure. Yeah, so so I guess let's let's think a little bit about as a company comes in, what are the things that you are looking for in that business? And and we can go down to sort of a structural level, whether it's like 
the categories of business or there are certain themes that that you look for within a SaaS company, what makes it a right check for LCAP when you look at a SaaS business? Yeah, so I mean, we're definitely generalists on like, you know, we'll look at any vertical or uh, product type. But I think the the things we're really maybe most excited about are we frame it internally as like we're looking for painkillers, not vitamins. Not that vitamins can't be great and they're probably good for your long term health, but things that are either you know can generate cash savings like after payment of the product in year one are super compelling, and that's kind of a, a nuance I think we've applied post COVID. Uh, we've always had the vitamin painkiller uh, framework, just because it, I think the the rip out of those products is so much harder. You just have higher net revenue retention on those businesses than not. And we're also looking for like a focus, right? It's products that understand, like maybe a, a good word for it is opinionated, right? It's opinionated software product where it's, it has a view of the world and a, and a, a view of the pain point it wants to solve. And it's not everything for everybody. And that's okay because I think there's a credentialization as a product, especially when you're selling into businesses that needs to take place. And you need some, you need people to be evangelists for it. And if you're just kind of, we're just the general, every business can, every business unit can use our product and we're going to be great. Like that just makes me less excited about the go-to-market. I'd much rather hear, Hey, this is a real problem for user X and this is how we solve it. And this is all we're going to solve right now. And like, and then you can talk about the pipeline and optionality, but I don't think operators have a good idea of when they're going to pivot into new additional markets any more than, than you do. So like questions are almost not that fruitful. So that, that's an interesting framing because I've never heard of SaaS products be thought of as opinionated. I think people think of consumer products where you say, oh, I want your D2C brand to have a point of view and to stand for something. And, you know, the, the whole branding speaks to an audience. I haven't heard of SaaS products being thought about like that. Are you borrowing from the consumer world a little bit when you think about that? Or is there a specific reason why opinionated is so important today? I, I've heard this several times talking to developers in diligence for a product we were looking at that was you know, a, kind of a, a plug-in around uh, product management tools. And each of the developers independently, totally work in different companies, they all frame these PM tools as opinionated. They're like, well, like Clubhouse and Basecamp and Trello and like they, they're opinionated. Like, Jira is not opinionated. It's like the like the opposite of that, right? It can do everything for everybody, and that's why Atlassian stock has been amazing. Also, a company that you know didn't take the venture route, but at least initially. So that's kind of where I think we first started hearing the opinionated framework. But it it, it it's a good succinct way to kind of describe like a niche focus, like have an opinion about the market and what you're solving and. You know, if you scale and you're huge, then you have optionality to to solve other problems. But like, do one thing really well when you are getting off the ground and you're really trying to to grow, and 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 then figure out like the next growth loop. Yeah, it's it's a really good way to say that. I think that's the one thing that folks, especially first time founders, miss sometimes because they they want to hit so many targets, right? Especially when you come from an industry, you're like, I'm going to solve every problem that this industry that I've worked in has. And I think that idea of like, listen, solve one problem really, really well, 
is I think just really, really great advice for any founders, especially first-time founders to consider because that in and of itself, as you said, land and expand opens up more things for you to do. But if you don't solve that problem really well in the first place, you're not going to have a company for very long, unfortunately. Right. I mean, it, yeah. it's going to make the TAM slide in your fundraise deck look worse by, <laughs> by having an opinion. But I think the likelihood that you build a real business is, is higher. So, But it doesn't matter for you, right? Because when somebody comes in with a TAM slide that isn't a billion dollar TAM, you're like, that's okay. That still flies for us. Right. Where if you came into a traditional $100 million venture fund, that better be a billion or you know, there's no conversation to be had. And back to the first <laughs> point, like I think, I think people always underestimate the TAM for these software businesses, right? They're much bigger than the TAM slide says, even if you adjust for, for an opinion. So uh, we started off the episode kind of rehashing some of the experiences you had in college and earlier in your NFL career. Is there anything today that really still sticks with you, whether it's in terms of work ethic or mindset or approach to things from your playing days that you've brought into your, your journey at LCAP and now in the corporate world? Yeah, I think to my my kind of story about Bill Callahan and and thinking that I couldn't play in the NFL because it was this magical, mysterious thing where, you know, the the guys were like unicorns emerging from the SEC. And then actually playing and 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 kind of it demystified what was, you know, a very kind of almost an impossible thing to achieve for me. You get in you know, the first day at camp and it's like Brian Dawkins and Brian Westbrook. And like, these are Hall of and Trello. And you're just like, these guys are insane. And then you go out in the field and you play and you're like, Oh, like, okay. Like it's still running around. Like it kind of, it kind of, it, it was a, there was the clear demarcation between like what I kind of thought was possible and, and before and after just not even getting drafted, but like actually getting on the practice field and, and, and playing with those guys. And I think the lesson is that, you know, it's all just people and it's, and it's work and, you know, it's focus and yes, aptitude and, and that type of thing and opportunities that all come in. There's a lot of luck involved, but at the end of the day, you can control what you can control. And, and that's like effort and focus. And those things don't pay off in the short term. They're just not short term things, right? Like you, I can focus on, Increasing the amount of content I read it every day, but like it's not going to pay dividends, you know, next week. Maybe it is, but it's it's much more likely to to be something that over time and like consistency and effort are going to be the difference maker. And I think that's like a really important lesson that football taught because it's just a football career is just you don't go from high school to the NFL. Like there's that big chunk of college and and horrible workouts and you you know and there's so many metrics around performance and speed and like that you, you really like see the value, the tangible feedback of, of like a long-term approach towards, towards work. And like, that's something that I think has been, it's just stuck with me as I've approached finance. I think if I didn't have that, like being a 30 year old and not knowing what EBITDA was, and then, you know, being able to kind of be where I'm at today, I probably wouldn't have even attempted it. Right. But because I was either, gullible enough or naive enough to think like, oh, I can totally do this. I just got to work my ass off and stick with it. So for better or worse, that's that's been kind of the mindset. I think that's pretty cool. I think there's there's something to be said to, you know, to revere the routine, right? Routines are underrated and your habits are, you know, just that daily focus, like you said. And sports, you get that quantitative payoff in wins and losses or, you know, contracts and progressing in the sport. 
but yeah, anyway, I'll just leave with that thought about I, I, that I use a lot, which is revere the routine. So I guess we'll, where we'll close, Stu, because I know uh, we got to let you go soon as well. What are you most excited about as you look forward to the next year, years ahead for LCAP and, you know, for you personally? I think, you know, we're raising our second fund now and it feels like LCAP's kind of going to be a thing, right? Which I, that maybe sounds not like an odd thing to be excited about, but you don't know that, right? The first 18 months, you're like, like, I think this is right. Like, and you're trying to learn and grow and, and to your point on, on routine, just, you know, improve every day. And now it feels like there's enough kind of meat on the bone that we're going to exist. And I think the market has kind of validated our approach to some degree, at least at a small scale. And so I'm excited about continuing to just build, build the business and, and hire more people and grow the team and just, you know, it feels like you're an operator trying to scale like a startup. This, this, so it, it, I'm excited about maybe the traction. And I think the next 12 months are going to be a, a wild ride, but I'm excited about it. That's amazing. Well, Sue, we're so glad that you feel good about LCAP existing because I think Tim and I would agree that there definitely needs to be somebody filling that white space between venture capital and private equity. And, you know, no disrespect to either one, it's still great ways to build businesses. But you guys have clearly found your niche and we're excited that uh, you're seeing the traction and the interest to bear. So we're so glad that you joined us today on The Game Plan to share your journey, to share your experience. And we look forward to keeping in touch and seeing how LCAP grows in the coming years. Likewise. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, too. All right. That was a great show with former NFL linebacker turned SaaS investor Stuart Bradley. Jay, agree or disagree with what Stuart had to say about choosing a co-founder? So, Tim, Stuart talked about the idea of your co-founder being a Venn diagram with you. So you have these areas of overlap, but then as much of that area outside the overlap that you can have is really valuable. You know, I think it's right. It's one of the things that most people have a hard time with when they pick their co-founders. You know, the challenge is you want to work with people that are a lot like you. But the problem with it is sometimes those people bring the exact same thing to the table that you do. And so the challenge I have when somebody comes in and they're a subject matter expert and they're like, this is my best friend and I'm starting a company with them. It's like, well, you guys also have all these other skill sets that you need to have that will make this company successful. Team is such an important thing in the early stage of starting a business. And, you know, I think Stuart has a good handle on why he picked his co-founder to start his fund. Yeah, well, I think you're missing the key point about what he had to say, which was there's a huge difference between picking a co-founder for a company than picking a co-founder for a fund. You know, his fund is going to be him and his partner. It's two people. So he, it's not that you don't also have to get it right in the situation of a startup. You do, but you can build and fill other skills and different perspectives in a startup setting a lot easier than you could when the final team size is only two or three people. So I like how he, he thought about it that way. Look, I agree with the, the Venn diagram idea, but I also think it's really hard to put people in those kinds of boxes. We could all sit down and write like what we think our best attributes are and what somebody else's are, but right. it's not really until you get into the weeds with them that you truly understand how someone works. So in that sense, I think it's good that he formed a working relationship with his partner well in advance to starting this fund so that he could really understand whether or not they were going to be a good fit for each other. Yeah, Tim, that's a really good point. And Stu also said something that I've actually never heard before when he said that he invests in opinionated SaaS products. 
So Tim, let me ask you this. Do SaaS products need to have an opinion? Yeah, well, I think rather than opinionated, I really like to think of it more about focus, right? So when we think about a new app or company like Figma, they really locked in and focused on layout, whereas Photoshop is the do everything tool. And as a result, they made a lot of progress because there was designers out there that said, I want a better layout tool. And I think that's how a lot of enterprise SaaS solutions come to market. And it's in a similar vein of how the growth of consumer has continued, where I literally go and I Google best layout tool or better layout tool. And what pops up is Figma and people talking about it, and then it's easy to use. So I love that as a way in. Over time, certainly you need to expand a bit more to capture a bigger market, but you're only going to be successful if you find that product market fit early on. Yeah, I think it's so important today for SaaS products to have that opinion because the barrier to entry to create a SaaS product is so low. So if you try to be the do everything for everybody, you're going to fail at all of it, right? But if you come in with a real focus and, and an opinion of like, look, we've all been doing it one way for a while. Here's why we're different. You stick out in the mind of the consumer, first and foremost, right? Allows you to get some sales in the door. You stick out in the mind of investors, which I think is really critical because, again, they're seeing so many pitches from products that look very identical. You have to stand out in some way. And then most importantly, you're able to focus your team. You're like, look, this is the lane that we own. And then to your point of, of land and expand, we've seen it work often where, you know, whether it's it's something like uh, a Slack or Atlassian or whoever, you start with a very focused product that has an opinion about the way the world should be. And then you can start to serve a larger customer. The problem I think focus creates for you is that investors sit there and say, well, your TAM isn't large enough. You know, we don't think you're a big enough product because you're so focused on this one thing. I personally think that's short-sighted. Hmm. So Stewart's fund, LCAP Holdings, is interesting in that they are targeting VC assets, but very much not taking a traditional VC approach. Do you think venture capital has peaked as an asset class? No, you know, it's funny. I don't think it's actually peaked. The, the challenge we're having in this venture world right now is there is so much money in the private markets. And I think what you're seeing is actually this really interesting barbell effect in traditional venture capital. So on one end, you have, you know, what I'll say, like the multi-stage big boy funds, you know, Sequoia and Andreessen, and, and they're raising multi-billion dollar funds, and they're multi-stage, and they're multi-focused, and they kind of do everything. On the other hand, you have very specialized funds, typically started by former operators that are saying, I was an operator in biotech. I'm going to start a, a very focused biotech fund because I know that I can help these folks. There's not a lot of room in the middle, but no, I don't think it's peaked. I think it's just getting pushed out to the edges. Yeah, I think the way you describe it is get more defined. And I'd love to say that I had this grand vision uh, when I started TAC Ventures in the end of 2015 about how being specialized and coming in as an operator was going to be a huge advantage. Uh, and that's where the whole world of early stage venture was going. But I was just more focused on my situation and where how I could differentiate in the market and what value I could provide to founders. It became clear to me that capital wasn't the X factor anymore. It was what else can you do? And so I looked at my skills, my background in sports and media and entertainment and consumer and decided that's what I really wanted to focus on. I felt like there was going to be growth in those sectors, which is how I was able to raise capital to go out and start TAC Ventures. And so far, so good. And Tim, speaking of so far, so good, it is so good to finally have sports back in our lives. I mean, the NBA came back, MLB as well. And then last week with the NHL, all back in our lives, except some leagues 
are having a little bit of a harder time than others. Why do you think that is? Well, yeah, I'm not so sure it is so far so good for everyone. Uh, yes, the NBA has done a great job. We can talk about that. They've had zero cases. But I am really worried about MLB. They've had outbreaks both in Philadelphia and Florida, and that doesn't seem like it's going to end. And then also the NFL, they haven't put any clear plan in place. And in a lot of ways, it's like, let's have the states make their own rules. Well, the virus doesn't care which team locker room it is or, you know, it's not going to divide itself during the game, like on the field of play. And I look at like what the Detroit Lions have done, for example, they posted the other day and you could see how they had social distancing within their locker room and shields up. But like there's 53 men sharing a locker room and showers and everything there's just no way that if somebody in that locker room contracts the virus that it's not going to spread. So I like what the NBA has done because they've taken it on the league to figure it out. And they say, okay, but the teams, you can still figure out everything in terms of like your on-court performance, but we're going to handle everything as it relates to the virus. I think there's two things that makes the NBA's job a little bit easier. One is that footprint, which is that there's just less players on the roster, which means that there's less sort of peripheral folks around the team that have to also be managed within the bubble. So that's that's just a little bit of form factor. But the second is what they have actually done, which is over communicated, over communicated internally to players and over communicated to the public about what are the expectations? How are they keeping everybody safe? You're just not seeing that with the other leagues, especially with the NFL, where you're actively seeing players speaking on Twitter about the fact that. Training camp is supposed to come back, but they don't know what protocols are in place to protect them. When you're in a time of crisis like this, especially in a very, very public setting, you have to over-communicate. And I just feel like some of the leagues just aren't doing a really good job with that. Until that plan is in place, well, first of all, fans aren't going to be in there, but players aren't going to feel safe coming back, which is why you're starting to see NFL players start to opt out of the 2020 season. It's a great call out, Jay. Thanks for joining me on this week's Partner Rundown. A pleasure as always. Thanks, Tim. So that's it for this week's episode of The Game Plan with Jacob Poor and Tim Cott. As always, thanks so much for listening. Big thanks to Stu Bradley for joining us on The Game Plan today. Make sure you check him out on Twitter and Instagram. And keep in touch with him on LCAP Holdings at LCAPHoldings.com. Our thanks to Kanal Tundin for making the intro to Stu, as well as to our producer, Will Richardson, for editing this episode. Hey, if you made it this far, congratulations. You must really like what we have to say. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at The Game Plan Show and leave us a five-star review on iTunes. We'll see you next week on The Game Plan.